Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First today, though, we start with the homeless crisis in BC, the encampments we see in so many BC cities. Especially in the city of Nanaimo. They've had problems there. We've talked a lot about it here on the show. Got Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh standing by to discuss. Premier David Eby was there some time ago and he promised some action on this file. He got an earful from Nanaimo residents too. Have a listen to this. We're not going to solve these problems overnight, but we are going to show progress for British Columbians, the direction that we're going. I don't feel safe. It's the first time I've, you know, I carry a knife now. Revolving door criminal justice has failed the citizens of Nanaimo. It's failing the citizens of British Columbia. Okay, the announcement yesterday of a housing agreement between the province and the city. Will this make things better? Let's discuss with the mayor, Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. Mayor Krogh, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Delighted to be here and to talk about this issue. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for coming on. Could you briefly describe the challenge and the situation that you've had in Nanaimo? You've been asking for help for a long time. You got some yesterday. What is the problem there? Uh, the problem here is the problem that exists in every major centre in British Columbia and are arguably across this country. We have a mental health, addictions, trauma, brain injury crisis, uh, coupled with the homelessness and the criminality that goes with people uh, who abuse drugs trying to secure their supply. Uh, Nanaimo is a port city, I think has always faced some particular challenges, and we have had a significant high number of people who are homeless. Yesterday's announcement of 100 supportive housing uh, beds is very much welcomed. Uh, the locations, of course, are, are never popular with anybody, uh, but it's a huge step forward for us, and I was delighted to sign the Memorandum of Understanding with the province. Okay, how many homeless do you have there on, on the streets in Nanaimo, and will 100 temporary spaces make a difference? It will make a big difference. Uh, I don't rely on the official count with great respect. I don't find them very useful, personally. Uh, our frontline responders, the RCMP, uh, community safety officers, bylaw officers, many in the community involved with the homeless population, uh, the estimate guesstimate is more like 800 to 1,000, which in a city of wow. 100,000 is a very big number. Okay, so man, man, that is big. Is, is, yeah. is a huge help. It's a huge help. Uh, and and I hope that uh, other communities, I mean, we've signed on, Prince George, uh, other uh, Kelowna, other communities have signed on. It's an important step in dealing with, as I've said before, I think on your show, Mike, and on other shows, 30, 40 years of failed social and health policy. And uh, it, we're not going to get out of it without significant effort and, frankly, expense. Right. Uh, speaking to Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh, as you mentioned that not everyone is happy with the announcement, particularly around this announcement by the province that temporary spaces at a facility called Newcastle Place in Nanaimo will remain open for new residents there. It sounds like the residents there were hoping that were hoping that facility would be closed. And people showed up at the announcement yesterday, as you know. Let's have a listen here. Some of the Nanaimo residents not happy with this uh, housing deal. They think it falls short. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. A permanent facility after five years and three months of hell and back. It's really a lot to ask our community to continue to support that. 
Back in March, the area was rocked after a local businessman was shot trying to retrieve what he says were stolen items from a homeless encampment. Okay, Mayor Krug, what do you say to these people who are concerned that this is not going to make a difference? Uh, with the Newcastle site, that site, yeah. uh, when it was set up very quickly, when Tent City was shut down pursuant to a B.C. Supreme Court order that the previous council obtained, uh, was frankly not managed well. It was not managed well. There was a tremendous increase in crime disruption in the area. Things have, in fairness, settled down. But the community, that area, that neighborhood was promised that this facility would be temporary and then replaced in due course by what we will call permanent, properly built, affordable supportive housing. Uh, right. That, in fact, is not going to occur as quickly as people would like, and I understand their frustration, but the concept was the people who are there now are going to be moved into a permanent building that has just been just about finished right across from the police station in uh, downtown Nanaimo, and the thinking was, and I, I agree and support it, why when you have existing structures would you not put people in them when, in fact, the uh, BC housing is not quite ready to go ahead with the construction yet, permitting process and all of those things in place. So yeah. rather than leave 50 empty beds, get 50 people off your streets. Let me come at it from another angle. People sometimes sure. forget this. No one asks to be born with a mental health issue. No one asks to become a drug addict. No one asks for brain injury. But we're not going to solve this by leaving people in the streets to literally, in many cases, die or you... or become worse off than they are already. On that precise point, you have been very outspoken and very articulate, in my opinion, on the crisis that the city faces and the options that the province should consider, including secure care for people who are really struggling on the streets. You mentioned mental illness, drug addiction, brain injury, which I think is underestimated by a lot of people is one of the big problems here. Do you still support that involuntary secure care? I have continuously called for that for four years now. Yeah. There is no question there are too many people on our streets who suffer literally all four. They have a mental health issue. They have an addiction issue. They probably arrived on the streets with brain injury, which is now worse. Uh, they suffered some form of trauma. To suggest that you can leave them out in the streets and that somehow they'll have some epiphany and decide to get better is simply not working. We need secure and voluntary care for a portion of our street population. It is the compassionate and right thing to do, and I'll continue to speak out about it until I see it happening in the kinds of numbers where people will see real improvements in their in their communities, and the families of those individuals will be able to finally sleep at night confident that their children, their brothers, their mothers, their fathers, whoever, are safe. So what would that mean then? Like reopen Riverview, basically, right? It, it, no, it's not as simple as that. I, I, no right. one's asking for a return to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, as I always say, and Nurse Ratchet. Smaller community-based facilities, yes, secure. Uh, and yes, in many cases, you will argue it's involuntary, although with somebody, I think, who is, uh, you know, so deep in addiction and brain injury is hardly a person who uh, could volunteer or agree or consent to anything anyway. Those kind of facilities across the province, indeed, as I've said, across the country. This isn't just a BC issue. Look south of the border. Uh, look to Moncton, New Brunswick, for heaven's sakes. Look to Montreal or Toronto, Medicine Hat, all kinds of places. This is, in my view, and certainly from my perspective, given the earful I get from, from voters here in Nanaimo, it's the issue. Do you, it's the issue of time. Do, you do you detect any willingness by this government 
to do this, to set up these secure care facilities around B.C.? I know you've you've spoken to the premier, you've talked to the health minister. What do they tell you? I think there is a strong concern around this, around the legal issues. And frankly, if it means getting to the Supreme Court of Canada and getting clarification, then for heaven's sakes, get on with it. Because right now, people are living in misery on our streets, and they are creating a great deal of misery for those who aren't suffering and living in our streets. Uh, I think there is a reluctance, a concern for a variety of reasons. But I must say, and I'm going to say it here, as I've said it privately and publicly to everybody, I believe this will be a vote-determining issue in the upcoming provincial election, and I'm hoping to paraphrase Dr. Johnson, if I don't sound too snotty, that the prospect Mm -hmm. of being defeated in October will focus the minds wonderfully of all British Columbia's politicians of whatever stripe, and that they will offer sincere, compassionate solutions to the street disorder that exists and the misery that's out there. Okay, I'm glad to hear you speaking out on it, continually on it, and thanks for coming on today. Thank you for continuing to give attention to this. I really appreciate yeah. it. Hey, you heard my conversation there with Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh. The provincial housing minister was in town yesterday. They signed a housing deal, 100 supportive housing units there in Nanaimo. Not everyone in the city thinks this is going to solve the problems there in Nanaimo. Got lots of calls coming in. Let's check in with Colin Middleton. He is a public safety advocate in Nanaimo. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Colin, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. What do you think of this announcement yesterday? Uh, well, I mean, uh, listening in on what Mayor Crow said, I, I don't disagree with the majority of, of what he said. I, I think that um, to reiterate some of his points, um, it's let's get on with it. You know, yeah. like this this stuff was supposed to be um, moving along a lot so- faster than it has been. And part of the problem right now is that our government is moving too slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially on crime, right? Like, can you tell me your concerns there? What do you want to see done, uh, especially chronic repeat offenders? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know this. You know our position on that is that um, you know we want them off the streets, and yeah. and uh, they're the ones causing a lot of the problems that are associated with these with these uh, supportive housing uh, locations. I mean, Mayor Croaks, you know, uh, echoed that. These the locations of these places are not popular. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, it's why would a reasonable person not want something like this in their backyard? And and we can come up with lots of reasons. What do you think about his idea for secure involuntary care? He says it wouldn't be like a big Riverview hospital, but smaller facilities around the province where people would be, you know, perhaps under the Mental Health Act would be committed. Yeah, we. Yeah, like people. We need to have a serious conversation about this as a as a society because um, suggesting that there that the numbers of people that are out on the streets languishing that you know any any sensible person can see that they are not capable of making self care rational decisions in their own best interests. You know, there people are have had a are had enough of. Yeah of seeing this unfold and not being able to help them. And the only place where they can be helped is in a situation like secure uh, involuntary care. Colin, stand by here. Let's take some calls here. Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just calling in regards. Yes, you should open up Rivendell again, or Riverview again. I used to work there. And they had Christy Clark and Falcon right on the front lawn saying it's all decrepit. Meanwhile, there's movies being shot there with 
people going in and out of the place. All they did is re-roof the place. Those buildings are super strong, and they're perfectly well, and they're huge. You don't have to make it like a prison, but they do have security there already, and they have an ambulance service on each end of the lot. What was it like to what was it like to work there when it was open? It was uh, it started getting very overcrowded because there were a lot of people mm. and they were all these people they let go. They went to halfway houses and they ended up downtown Hastings. That's yeah. where they felt comfortable and that's where it all started. That's how it all started. I'll tell you that right now. And what was it like working there? It was great. It got did get overcrowded and there was less funding, so things started to uh, deteriorate but they can fix that right up it's a would you say would you say that the problem was they shut the facility down and and i remember at the time there was a lot of talk about treating people with more compassion and they wanted uh care in the community but they didn't That's get the right. care they right like them, people were put them in halfway houses it did yeah. not work it did not work at all people they were just like people here come on into my house kind of feel they had no idea who these people were they were they had mental issues which is true and they had addiction problems yeah, and they put them uh, there and they said as long as they're on their medication, oh, they'll be fine. Well, sure, as long as they're on their medication, but that doesn't work that way. Steve, thanks for the call, Colin. What do you what do you think of that? I hear this a lot that we shut down facilities like Riverview, but then we didn't provide the supports and help for people once they've transitioned into the community. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I listened to uh, the expertise of Dr. Julian Somers on this. I mean, his perspective is, I think, you know, pretty reasonable that. You know, if the people that were let go out of Riz- Riverview uh, didn't get the community supports, and of course, this is what happened, right? And yeah. and um, I think that is the lesson learned over the last, you know, 30, 40 years of failed social health policy, as Mayor Krogh uh, repeats uh, ad nauseum. Squeeze in one more call, Kathy in Delta. Hi, Kathy, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, go ahead. Hi, yeah, I agree with that, um, the involuntary... Um, uh, how uh, you know uh, housing or, or buildings, yeah. and I like his idea of smaller you know units in, in more places. It's, it just makes sense. Like this is long, long overdue, and why they ever closed Riverview and just threw everybody out in the streets is just beyond my comprehension. I, Kathy, just, th- thank I can't, you. I, I can't believe it. <laughs> thank you for the call. He does seem like uh, a voice in the wilderness on it, though, especially when it comes to this government. Colin, thanks for coming on. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Let's talk about doing a a modest renovation of your home and some of the red tape, hassles, costs, delays you can be hit with by your local city hall. You take a look at the expense to get permits, the complicated permitting process in this country, It can all add up to long delays to get a permit, even for a very small project. Super interesting study on this just out, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It is Red Tape Awareness Week this week in Canada. And as part of that, this report looks at which cities in the country have got the costliest and most complicated permitting process just to do a small reno. Can you guess which city in Canada came at the top of this list? You can probably guess what it is. Yeah, of course it's Vancouver. Of course it's Vancouver. The most expensive permits, the most complicated permitting process. 
Got Annie Dormuth standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to Doug Langford here. He is with JDL Homes in Vancouver about the red tape and permitting delays. Have a listen. Right now, residential renovations are really, really backed up. The house behind me, we applied for a permit to renovate the interior of the house, uh, which is one of the most simple building permits you can get. There's a real lack of communication. Uh, there's no real structure when you call to say, well, what stage is it at? Yeah, I mean, you hear this a lot. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Annie Dormuth. Annie is the Provincial Director for BC and Alberta, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Annie, thanks for coming on today. Oh, great to always talk to you, Mike. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for doing it. And really cool study that you've issued today. I love the title of the report, Flushing Out the Nonsense here. And that's because... You, the project that you looked, you did a compare, contrast and compare different cities in Canada, right? For a small, a small reno. So we're talking a new bathroom in an, in an existing home, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So we looked at the major municipalities across Canada for a $20,000 project for a residential home to turn a powder room into a full bath. Um, and as you mentioned, Vancouver definitely comes out as a major outlier in terms of the number of permits required to complete such a project, as well as the cost. <laughs> okay, so a bath, so turn a powder room into a bathroom. So a powder room is typically like just uh, a sink and a toilet, basically, right? So you want to expand yeah, exactly. that into, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So turning kind of like, you know, just, you know, your regular powder room of a sink and maybe a toilet into that full right. like four piece bath. So including the tub, the shower, the vanity and the toilet all in one. And yeah, I mean, you, you know, the the builder that you had on, you know, put it down pretty correctly about the nightmare situation out in Vancouver. And uh uh, I know housing affordability is, you know, a major priority for governments across the entire country. And really what this report highlights is that red tape reduction could be a little bit part of that solution to perhaps get uh, homes built faster for all Canadians. Okay, very dubious distinction for the city of Vancouver on this list. The highest permitting costs in, in the country. And we're not talking about some ambitious, bizarre uh, unusual reno. We're talking about a new bathroom. I mean, this has got to be probably one of the most common projects you'd have in an existing home. So how much does it cost when you add up all well, those permit costs? Yeah, so in Vancouver, it costs uh, $20,000. Um, if you look to the province, uh, just to the east of us uh, in BC, you look at Edmonton and Calgary, their costs are $773 in Edmonton and $439 in Calgary. So Vancouver is definitely the outlier in this. Uh, $22,000 as well as 11 permits required. Uh, most of the other municipalities across the country only require around five to seven permits. And, you know, their costs are ranging between 200 and 700 uh, with the highest in Edmonton around that range. So, yeah, you got to you got to give your head a shake here about what is going on in Vancouver to amount to these very, very high costs. Eleven different permits, more than two thousand bucks to pur purchase the permits for a, a very simple bathroom renovation. That's got a I mean, it's not only the money but it's the complexity of getting all these different permits. Annie, do you find that that creates delays as well? 
Oh, a hundred percent it does. You know, yeah, for example, course. the highest, yeah, uh, uh, the, you know, the highest permit cost is $1,300 for electrical permit. And, you know, they're, they're, we're talking about electrical permits, building permits, a survey plan, a site plan, renovation drawing, an owner's undertaking schedule E124, things like that, structural engineer, you know, schedule B. These are the types of permits that are required to complete that simple type of project. Now, I mean, if you bring that to like, you know, the larger scale of a small business owner wanting to expand their business, you know, either through a patio or, or you know, adding uh, more space or even, you know, a larger development for affordable housing. I mean, all of these costs really do add up. Yeah, for sure. And it will uh, inevitably inflate the cost of the, the project as well in many cases, especially if you're waiting and you got to wait for this. Let's have another listen to Doug Langford here, JDL Homes in Vancouver. He addresses that precise topic, this kind of red tape, permitting delays, and what it does to the cost of a project. Let's listen. It's a big burden on us because we're, we also have staff. Uh, who are also paying rent and mortgages and supporting families. As an example, on another project that uh, we're just about to start construction, uh, it's taken a, uh, about 13 months to get a permit. And in that time, the cost of the house with Laneway Home has increased $300,000. Yeah, I mean, time is money, right? If you get all these delays, the price can go up. Annie, your thoughts? Well, that's exactly the case. I mean, yeah. you know, this report really does highlight the need, especially for Vancouver, to look inward at their own processes. Uh, it is a goal, of course, for all governments to look at affordable housing, to get affordable housing built for Canadians. It's time we look internally at our own processes that are hampering, uh, hampering the development of this. Um, and yeah, Vancouver uh, definitely needs to look at the costs as well as the time, as well as streamlining its own permitting processes. Right. And you, as you mentioned earlier, we're in a housing crunch. We're in a housing crisis here in Vancouver, in BC, in Canada. So is this type of red tape, does that exacerbate the current housing problems that we have right now? I definitely say I would in terms of just getting uh, houses built and the time it takes to get these permits and the costs related to it. Um, that's definitely, I would have to say, probably one of the one of the things hampering uh, getting homes built and getting homes built faster. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to Annie Dormuth, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, what would you what would you guys like to see done here at CFIB here to make this improve the situation? Well, definitely taking an internal audit of uh, municipalities' own red tape. You know, uh, this really highlights that Vancouver stands out as a big, big outlier in comparison to the rest of the country. Uh, definitely doing that, being more transparent with the services and permitting processes, simplifying, automating it, um, you know, reducing related redundancies. And again, I really strongly question why it costs $1,300 for electrical permit. Uh, keep in mind that this is also a council that just increased business licensing fees as well as part of its budget. Um, you know, we need to be looking internally using red tape as part of the solution to address uh, to address housing and also uh, many other challenges that the B.C. government and, of course, uh, Canadians around the country face. Yeah. And this is at a time when you've got basically every level of government and every politician is absolutely seized with this issue. They talk about it all the time. This is a housing crisis. It's a housing crunch. We need to get more stuff built. We need to get more affordable housing on the market. 
Every single level of government is saying this. But then you start drilling down into the details of this system and the way it works, and it's not working the way it should. I mean, you talk about this type of costly red tape. What are you hearing from small business owners? That's who you guys represent there at CFIB, the small business owners. It's the backbone of the economy here. What do they tell you? Do they tell you? Go ahead. Yeah, well, in, in a recent survey, kind of prior to uh, 2024, here we we asked business owners, you know, what are your what are your main challenges? What do you think governments should focus on or make a priority in 2024? Definitely reducing the cost of business was number one. Red tape was also up there, but number three was looking at housing. Um, housing also affects business owners if they can't find workers to live close to where their business is. So it is definitely something that even business owners see as a priority for government. Um, and red tape is part of that. But as you can imagine, you know, changing a powder room into a full four piece bath uh, costs as much. Imagine what a small business owner would go through to expand their own business. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This is just uh, one glimpse of uh, maybe a bigger problem. Annie, great report. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Of course. Great to be uh, on the show as always, Mike. Let's talk about Canada's drive to 100% electric vehicle sales. 2035 is the deadline. That's the law of the land in Canada. We also have provincial legislation. Same deadline, 100% new vehicle sales to be EVs by 2035. Where are we going to get all these electric vehicles? Will this just force Canada to buy these electric vehicles from China. We've got Flavio Volpe standing by to discuss this. First, let's have a listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here. Have a listen. We're moving forward with specific targets of 20% electric vehicles for all new sales uh, in, uh, in 2026, 60% by 2030, and 100% by 2035. And with the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry, uh, it would surprise. It wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time. Okay, he thinks we can get there even sooner. Let's discuss it now with my guest Flavio Volpe, President, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association in Canada. Flavio, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, the, the Prime Minister's and this government, I think, has a uh, has a noble objective here. And I do think uh, there are Canadian, lots of Canadian uh, companies and jurisdictions that could benefit from our push on EV. But we're also being naive on how far ahead the Chinese are, how prepared they are, and how many products they're ready to sell to Canadians right now. So we just need to watch. We don't walk into their trap. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, and there's been a lot of recent analysis on this. Like, if we take a look at that 2035 deadline, Flavio, like, I think that that may be an unrealistic deadline, but it is what it is. That is the official target. Do we have enough domestic supply of these electric vehicles to supply that, or would we almost be forced to buy from China? Uh, you're being very charitable about that 100% uh, 2035. Um, you know, I'm in the business, and, and I'm not shy about saying that I think we'll get to 35 or 40%, because wow. the second half of your question is we don't have that. First of all, I don't think we're going to get the infrastructure in place uh, to charge these vehicles, nor are we going to have the vehicles 
Mike, for people who are in the market to buy Toyota Corollas or, or Honda Civics, they're not going to have a product in that price point anywhere in the near future to say, oh, I feel really good. I have the infrastructure in place, and I'm going to buy a $25,000 electric Honda Civic. How do you do that when the battery is, costs 25000 So we won't get there. But um, what's happening in other markets, so we're seeing it. We see the actual numbers. We see the, we see, uh, the market share uh, take off. In Mexico, for example, which is just you know, uh, two degrees south of us here, uh, uh, the percentage of Chinese vehicles uh, purchased uh, in uh, 2023 was 19.7 percent, was 5.4 percent the year before. In Europe, the growth of Chinese products um, for sale in Europe is up uh, hundreds of percent a year over year. Uh, what's that incredible growth based on? Well, they have a Chinese manufacturers have a different relationship with return on investment. Their centrally planned economy and access to capital means uh, their objective. You know, this isn't the secret objective. You can Google it. China EV 2025. They will. They're going to the the biggest markets. They're ready with product uh, that is a very low priced, and they're there to acquire market share first. Uh-huh. Profit is. Profit's not even mentioned. So why is that important? Look, if you're a buyer, if you're in Vancouver and you want to buy an EV and, and BYD sells you a really good EV without incentive for $28,000, why should you care about the Canadian economy? Why should you care about a Canadian offering? Well, if you're buying a BYD, there is no content uh, in it from Canada, not raw materials, uh, not hard parts, not any software. Um if you if we en masse decide that we're going to require as a federal government uh, uh, all buyers to get electric vehicles, then we're going to move all of those purchases to the countries that are ready, China, or countries that are half ready, like USA and Japan, but they're not ready on the battery side, so we're going to buy Chinese batteries. Um, then we're undercutting the advantages that I think we have, that we've banked on, that we've spent billions yeah. of dollars in setting up battery companies and mining in this country, Let's push those targets out a little bit, or at least do what the Americans do, which is there's a 27.5% tariff on Chinese vehicles for a reason there. Why is our mm. door open? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Is, there any ter- yeah. is there any tariff at all here on Chinese vehicles in Canada? No, what, what there is is, you know, mm. part of, we're all part of the WTO, and they have most favored nation status like 100 other countries, and there's a 2.5% tariff for anything that comes in. We have a federal incentive a purchase incentive of $5,000 that uh, the number one product being used to leverage a federal uh, incentive that comes from uh, taxes paid by Canadians is for a Tesla Model 3 that's made in Shanghai that's sold uh, in Canada. In the U.S., if you buy a Model 3, you're buying them made from Fremont. You know, hmm. we are, we are we're kind of doing this half-pregnant. You're either in or you're not. If we're gonna if we're gonna invest majorly in our capacity, then let's also protect protect our market. And if that sounds protectionist, um, then everybody on the planet is protectionist. We're the only yeah. ones who leave the door wide open. Not even the Americans do. Interesting. Speaking of Flavio Volpe, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, the drive to 100% EV sales EV sales by 2035. Um, if the government keeps going along this line and we're almost 
basically forced to buy these vehicles from China. What would be the impact on the domestic auto building industry here? Would it set us back that we'd never be able to catch up or can we catch up later? How, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, a couple of answers on this. Number one, the government will not continue on this path. I think it's smart enough yeah. to, know, to know how uh, the, 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 there's nothing subtle about the, the incoming uh, Chinese onslaught of EVs. There's a piece on it by Larry Herman in the Globe and Mail today. Read that. The Economists were seized with it yesterday. You know, decision makers read the Economist. The Economist said, the sky is falling. Got to watch out. Uh, it's raining EVs from China. We're going to close that door. So how do we close it? Do we say on our EV mandates that say, oh, um, if you make a – so what happens? If you don't hit the mandate and you're a car maker, then you're going to get fined $20,000 for every car you're short of the mandate, which is insane. Right. So yeah. Toyota's making a car here. But they can buy those credits from the Chinese importers. Let's get rid of that system. Let's give them credit if they make one here. And then let's just harmonize with the U.S. It's always worked. If the U.S. thinks um, that a, uh, a tariff like that will protect – all the global automakers who make cars in North America, this isn't about protecting General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, um, then we should be doing uh, the same thing. We've called for it. I think you're going to see some adjustments on the CV mandate. Um, otherwise, big failure. What's the risk for us? Well, 85% of the 2 million cars that we make in Canada get exported to the U.S. Uh, uh, and then we import uh, mostly from the U.S. for the 2 million cars that uh, we do make. We're going to find ourselves in a scenario where automakers aren't going to stop making necessarily cars in North America because of this, but they'll take a look and say, look, the U.S. protects our interests better. Uh, they, they protect our ability to sell inside their market. So maybe the next time an investment comes up for renewal, and they usually come up every five to seven years, and if you've got a plant in Ontario and you've got one in Ohio, it might be better to reinvest in Ohio than Ontario because we've left the door open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, I think we're really vulnerable here on this file for sure. Like when you take a look at the, the Chinese strategy here on this market, as they sit back and look at these these deadlines here, 2035 to go 100% EV sales. I mean, they must love it, don't they? Are they just are they rubbing their hands and saying this is great? We hope they stick to it. I think if we're really quiet, you'll probably hear the giggling uh, straight from <laughs> Shanghai on this one. It is we are saying you must buy these products. And then we're saying, we hope we can make them. And we're going to give uh, some of our local industries some money to make them. But if they don't make them fast enough, we're going to force you all to buy them from who's ready. Yeah. And, and it just says to me that the environment department in this country, uh, who's leading those mandates, doesn't talk to the industry department or the finance department. It, um, it's a, uh, you know, never mind if you're sitting in the in the traditional oil and gas industries of Western Canada to say, well, hold on a second. We're going to say everybody's going to EV, and we're going to somehow benefit on the other side of the country uh, based on the balance sheets that we built in, in, uh, in places like Alberta. But then we're not even waiting for that benefit. We're going to give it to Shanghai and Beijing. It, wow. it, it, it sounds crazy from Toronto. I can't imagine what it sounds like from Edmonton. Well, it sounds crazy from here, too, I, I got to say. And I, I agree with you, Flavio, that I don't think they're going to hit these targets. And we'll see if they do a rethink on it going forward here. And, of course, we may have an election here in the interim that uh, could change everything. Flavio, thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, anytime. 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.